Hello, hello, hello. Hey. Um, happy 2015. It's awesome to be back. Uh, I know uh, most of you right now are probably thinking that is one of the greatest Christmas sweaters I've ever seen. Um, and you're right. It is one of the greatest Christmas sweaters you've ever seen. Go Hawks. Um, that's right. Go Hawks. Yeah, that's, that's what I said. Go Hawks. Um, the, uh, the other parts, other people in the room, you probably might... Yeah, that's really cute for one week. Um, others of you in this room might be thinking, um, hey, man, it's not Christmas. Why are you wearing that? And to you, I say, oh, nay, nay, it is the 12th day of Christmas. Uh, it is Epiphany today on the 12th day of Christmas. You know, somebody gave me things or something. Um, uh, epiphany, the word epiphany just means the revealing, uh, the sudden revealing of something that was hidden. And the epiphany in the history of the church is recognized 12 days after Christmas um, as the day the Magi, these people who weren't Jewish, who weren't um, uh, one of the Israelite descendants, that they came to offer gifts to Jesus of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which um, many commentators think signify Jesus as being recognized as a king and a prophet and a priest. Um, and this is the first time, it's after a couple years of being born, but this is the day we celebrate that the, uh, that the world that wasn't Israel began to recognize Jesus as king for the first time, which is pretty cool. So I'm wearing this in celebration of Christmas mostly, but also because the Seahawks are awesome and they're gonna win the Super Bowl, so that's cool. Um, and, uh, uh, but let's pray. Um, pray with me. Um, specifically because of Epiphany, I wanna pray that um, the world recognizes Jesus as king. Uh, Father, um, thank you for revealing to us your son, The fabric of all of creation shifted and changed by the God who made, made it becoming incarnate. I pray, uh, because this is the day we celebrate it in the church, I pray that everyone across this whole world that does not believe that your son is the king, the great high king, that they would believe. And I pray that we in this room would as well, those of us who don't believe that Jesus is the king and those of us who do, but we have things we have not submitted to him and we resist his kingship in those places any way we resist him like Rob prayed. Pray that Jesus, who is truly good, who knows how to love us and lead us better than we know how to love and lead ourselves, that he would show himself, that your spirit would, would reveal to us him as king. Thank you for that epiphany and for the epiphanies that you keep revealing to us as we place him before our mind and before our hearts. Tonight, would you help um, the words that I say, the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. So my name is Jason Leonard. I'm the, um, uh, the director at the house. Um, and every Tuesday night during the school year, if you don't know, we gather here um, to praise God, to learn from his word, to worship him. Um, we have the hope that students and leaders in this place would actually, would, would meet, um, would develop some relationships some friendships, that people that want to follow Jesus or learn more about him would actually meet each other and share life together. To that end, um, it, it, it just, it needs to be said often in this place. If, if you um, um, want to know Jesus or follow him as Lord, um, would you just come talk to me after this and let me know, or Kirsten or any of our interns or Susanna or our student interns or the people on the worship team, you let us know. We would, I would love, we would love to talk to you about what it means for Jesus to be Lord, for him to be king, for him to be savior. You don't have to be a Christian to come talk to us. I just love to talk about it. Uh, I probably have a pretty hard sales pitch, but I don't think I am planning on like 
bring in that the first time we meet, but whatever, we'll figure it out. Uh, you're hearing probably most of that stuff here anyway, but, um, but I'd love to meet with you. I'll be over probably by the door saying goodnight to people, so come over and find me. I got time to meet with you. Uh, but that's it. If this is your first time here or, or, or if you've been here a, a long time, like coming for a number of years, um, I just never, never want you to have to guess what we want from you. Like what our hope is when you come here and sit in this place, like if you come and just uh, come to the worship services or you're in a core group or you go on missions or you procrastinate all day in the hub, like whatever it is you do, like we, our hope for you is that you come to a deeper knowledge and love of Jesus. And then as you do that, you find that you belong to the church, to the people of God, that you believe in Jesus as Lord and that you actually become one of his disciples. That's the hope. I also hope that you get through school. I hope you're a good student. I hope that you are nice and respectful to your parents, even though they don't deserve it, probably. I hope that you love your undeserving roommates as well. I hope you accept the grace and the love of your roommates because you're probably undeserving of that. I I have all of these things. I hope that we can help you learn how to date well if you don't do that well, which a lot of you don't. Um, I'd love to help you do that, Um, to know how to read the Bible, all sorts of other things. But big picture, big picture, to know Jesus as Lord belong to the church, become his disciple. That's what I want. That's what our hope is for you here. I don't want you to have to guess on that. That's what my hope is. That's what the house is about. That's what I'm about. That's what I want for you. Um, Tonight, um, we're kicking off a new sermon series called Tension and Truth. Um, I want to begin by looking at Ephesians chapter four. Would you throw that Ephesians passage up for me, buddy? Thank you. This is Ephesians chapter four, uh, verses 11 through 16. It might be hinted at again a number of times. Um, If not, it'll it'll sort of serve as a... um, an underlying uh, sort of hope for the series. So uh, Paul says this to the Ephesian church um, as he's writing them a letter from prison. Um, He he says this to them in the middle of chapter four, which didn't have chapters originally, but this is what we call it. Um, uh, Paul says, and God, he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. If you're a Christian, that's you, saints for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, could be interpreted as adulthood, either way, to mature adulthood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Go back and focus just for a second. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature adulthood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. My prayer for you, uh, friends, over this sermon series called Tension and Truth is that you may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves of doctrine, by human cunning, by deceitful schemes, but instead that you would grow up into mature adulthood to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. I don't know what you are planning. That's what I'm hoping for. That one day you will be able to look at yourself in a mirror and say, I have now the fullness of the stature of Christ in me. I'm no longer tossed to and fro by the waves of doctrine, by human cunning, by this and that, pushed side to side, changing my mind this way and that, but that I 
have grown up in the body and have this mature stature, the fullness of Christ. To that end, I thought that what we should do is talk about some really debatable issues for college students that cause us to get tossed to and fro by the ways of every doctrine. I thought if we're gonna do this, let's, let's actually try to go for some really, really hard topics that continue to mess us up, that we divide on, that we disagree on, that fight against our unity. See, Paul is saying that what God wants is for us to be united in this one body, not tossed about. And so let's take some of the things that typically do toss us about, that divide us, that we struggle to be united on. Issues which frequently have us tossed about. Hell, women in leadership positions in the church, sex, pain and evil, drinking. We're gonna look at these kinds of topics. And we're gonna talk about what it looks like to follow Jesus in the midst of them. How do you follow Jesus when Christians disagree? What do you do when this denomination says this and this says that? When your mom says this and your dad tells you that? When your professor who proclaims to be a Christian says this and your pastor who doesn't act like one says this, what do you do? There are a lot of good pastors out there, just whatever. Y'all live in a time, um, it's unprecedented really. I mean, it, 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 that's not an exaggeration. It's an unprecedented time of opinions, of questions, of half-truths. New York Times just recently had an article called something like, what I have so many members, it was like ignorance and, um, uh, what, ignorance and arrogance or something. It was all about how like ignorance looks a lot like educatedness, <laughs> but it's not. Um, and how that's sort of a sign of the times. Everybody sort of knows lots of kind of truths, but like everything somebody posts on Facebook, I've gotta go to Snopes.com, but then do I trust Snopes.com? Where's the Snopes for Snopes? You know, like, like it's just all that stuff. So there, there's this, um, this quote that I wanted to share with you from a guy named David Kinnaman. He wrote a book called You Lost Me, and it's about young Christians leaving the church, and um, he interviewed uh, tons and tons of them. Will you put that up? Oh yeah, thanks for, for this predestination. That's fantastic, thank you. Um, uh, we're not talking about that during this series, but it might come up. It just came up, cool. Okay, um, uh, David Kinnaman says this. A young Christian might watch a debate between a Bible professor and an evolutionary biologist on YouTube, read a series of blog posts on intelligent design, then crack open her biology textbook to study for tomorrow's exam, after which she'll go to a local Bible study where the leader may go on at length about how you can't believe in evolution and the Bible at the same time. How can she know which of these sources is trustworthy? I don't think that's a stretch at all. Like, I've read this passage to some people that are 40, 50, 60, and they're like, man, that just sounds, you know, wow. And I'm like, no, 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 it's like real. It's like real for all of them. Like, they all do this all the time. And I don't think in the four years since that book's been published, it's gotten any easier. I think it's actually ramped up a ton. Y'all, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, many of you in this room will read the New York Times Relevant Magazine, Fox News, The Wall Street Journal, Huffington Post, and listen to NPR all in the same couple of days. And all of those things have very different biases. And they have very different arguments for what they're proclaiming to be true about all sorts of things in the world. About who you are, who God is, what it means to be a good human being, what a successful life looks like. Who's right? Who's right? Who can you trust? I think it's very, very easy for you to be tossed around by every wave. And specifically when it comes to things, when it seems like there's uh, these things that have disagreement within the church. Some Christians say this, others say that. What do we do then? 
What do we do with these debatable issues? What if we don't know the answer to this thing? What am I supposed to do? Or what if I think I know the answer, but I'm not totally sure? What am I supposed to do then? How do I follow Jesus? I want, I want to suggest tonight, um, and I think this is, uh, this is gonna carry itself through the, the rest of our series, um, but I want to suggest tonight that we follow Jesus by trusting him, and that sounds really trite and simple, but let me specifically say um, that that looks, um, what it means to trust Jesus in any given circumstance might look a little different. What does it look like to trust Jesus in debatable issues and things that Christians might disagree on and things that, that we don't have what seems like enough information to make a really solid stand on one of these questions? I think it means letting the truth that he's revealed frame what we don't know. Let me say that again. I think it means letting the truth that he's revealed frame what we don't know. Here's how I want to explain what framework means. Because I think this whole thing is really about framework. How do you follow Jesus in debatable issues? Framework. What do you do when Christians disagree? When you feel like you're being tossed around by the waves, you step back and you begin to frame this thing. Here's how I want to explain it. Um, I want you to imagine that, that right here off to the side of the stage is this, this big box, this like dark room with no light in it. And there's a door between me over here and this dark, dark room over there. Inside that room, there's no light, there's no light switch, no way to let light in, but there's this doorway into this room. It's dark, and this is light. And I want to know what's inside that room right there. And I think what we often do in our life when we come across a situation like this, when there's this space, this, this area this, of life, of, of intellect, of, of theology, of philosophy, of, of romance, or whatever, that I don't know what to do, but especially we do this with God. Oh my goodness, we do this with God. That as soon as I, I open this door and I go, wow, it's dark in there. I've, I don't know what's in this room. I don't know how to answer the questions that I have about this space. So I walk in and I shut the door. And now I'm standing in this pitch black room, stumbling all over the place, trying to touch the walls, feeling what's going on. And I'm clueless. I don't have any idea what's going on. And everything I knew minutes ago, I've totally blocked off. Everything that I was willing to say just last week, just last month, I believe this. I like this, I wanna do this. Here's what I think about God. Here's what I'm gonna do with my life. Here's the, all these things that I knew, I no longer let into that space. I blocked them out. Rather, what we ought to probably do if there's no light in this room is open the door and let the light that's in this room like just shine in there a little bit. I know there's no light in that room in and of itself, but I can at least open this door, right? Like push it as far open as I can get and let the light that's in this place fill up that dark space. At least I can let the light of this room cast itself into that room and see something, have some idea of what's going on in there. Imagine, um, practically, imagine I have a meeting with Kirsten tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. She and I are supposed to meet down in the hub, talk about, I don't know, you or something, I don't know. Uh, no, we don't do that. Well, we probably, anyway. Um, so we have this meeting at 10 o'clock and, and, um, and I show up at 10 o'clock and Kirsten's not there. And I'm like, oh man, where is she? I wait like five, 10 minutes. It, it, typically, by the way, this is not the way it is. Typically, I'm the one who's not there, but uh, whatever. But for the sake of this, we're gonna say Kirsten's not there. Um, and so she doesn't show up. It's like 10 minutes late. I start texting her. She doesn't respond. A couple minutes later, I call her. She doesn't respond. An hour goes by and she still hasn't shown up and I've heard nothing from her. You come into the hub and you're like, hey, Jason, and the first thing you say is, man, that's an incredible sweater because I'm probably wearing it tomorrow too. Um, and I say, thanks, you're right, it is an incredible sweater. And the second thing you say is, how you doing? And I say, well, I'm actually really struggling right now because I think Kirsten quit. Now, in the realm of all things possible, it's, it is a theoretical possibility that Kirsten could and can quit 
this job and just not show up tomorrow, and, and I don't know about that. I have to find out later. That is theoretically possible. And if you try to tell me in the middle of my, I shut the door and I'm standing in the dark, and I go, I think she quit, I think she quit, and you go, no, no, there's no way she quit. I go, yo, it's possible that she quit. And if you try to tell me that it's not possible, I win because it's technically possible. What, what, what I would do in a healthy mindset or framework of mind is I would step back and I would take stock of all the things that I know. Now, now, I don't know where she is, and there's no way I can fully address that question until she speaks for herself, right? I mean, until she actually speaks for herself, there's no way I can fully address that question. What I can do is I can begin to take stock of what I know. I know she loves this ministry. I know she loves students in this ministry. I know she hasn't talked about quitting. I know that quite often we get into conversations with students that go a little longer than we anticipated um, and, and are pretty deep, and, and she might be with somebody that needs undivided attention or any number of other things that, that, that would that I could lean toward and make way more sense in light of what I know, then Kirsten probably quit. You with me on that? Like, I take what I know about Kirsten, what I know about her job, all the things that are unarguable, and I begin to take this space, this dark room that I don't know an answer to, and I begin to let the light of all these things I know shine into that space. This is what framework looks like. This is what framework looks like. Letting the light of truth tell us about the mysterious darkness that we wonder about. The light of truth creates, can help us create a healthy space within which to answer all of our questions. I have this question I don't know what to do with. So often it's tempting to just immediately just stop considering everything seconds ago I put faith in and go, well, I don't know anymore. Rather than to say, well, I don't know what to do with that, but let me, let me just stop for a second and think, what do I know? And, and maybe, maybe the light never fully comes on, but this space begins to get framed in a much more healthy fashion. I no longer am thinking, I bet you Kirsten quit, and I'm crying in the middle of the hub and getting my Seahawks sweater dirty with my tears and stuff like that. Instead, I'm actually just calling to make sure her car didn't break down. Or I want to send her a text and, and tell her, I, I think you might be meeting with a student, I'm going to pray for you, because I got nothing else to do for the next couple, next couple of minutes, because nobody else wants to meet with me because I'm wearing a Seahawks sweater. Okay, I gotta stop the Seahawks thing, but it's really cool. Um, this is what framework looks like. Let me give you examples of framework, uh, framework at use in the Gospels from two of my favorite passages from the Gospel of John, okay? Um, in John chapter six, um, Jesus had just told, and, and again, I'm trying to communicate to you guys what framework looks like in the middle of debatable issues, all right? So in John chapter six, Jesus just told a number of Jews and his disciples that if they wanna have eternal life, they need to eat his body and drink his blood. If you don't do that, you will not have eternal life, direct quote. If you do not drink his blood and eat his body. People accused Christians of being can cannibals because of language like this. Very intense. Well, and the disciples and the Jews did what you might think they ought to have done if you were around at that time. If you were framing this well according to what they knew, probably. Many of them at that point, let's, let's just see what happens. Will you put that up, that uh, John chapter six thing? After Jesus said this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus, right, the, the, the author of life, the creator of God, the one with perfect mastery over language, the one who knows what's going on in people's minds and hearts, we, he, he could convince anybody to follow him, right? Well, when he tells them what they must do to, to inherit eternal life, this is what they say. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, like, right, he, all these people walked away, never following him again. And he turns and looks at the 12 and says, do you want to leave me too? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, 
Think about framework here. Lord, to whom shall we go? Jesus didn't, Jesus asked them a yes or no question. Yes or no, Peter, do you wanna go? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus asked him a yes or no question, but Peter decides to reframe it in a way he can actually answer it. Everyone else did not know what to do with Jesus' strange words at this moment. He literally said, and it's not like a funny play on words or some weird thing, he literally said, eat my body, drink my blood. And people were like, yo, that is weird. Thank you for the healings. Thank you for the food. You just fed 5,000 people, which is really cool. More, that's really awesome. But that is crazy. See you later. And nobody knew what he meant by that. Peter didn't know what he meant by that. He didn't say, Jesus, I don't want to leave you. I know exactly what you mean when you say eat my body and drink my blood. That sounds awesome. It's not what he said. He stops for a minute in the middle of this question that he's not sure what to do with. Do you want to go like everybody else? He considered what he knew. He stopped for just a second. He considered what he already knew. And he reframed this question in light of what he knew. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I trust God that you have the words of eternal life and no one else does. So even though I don't know what you mean by this, I can't find eternal life somewhere else. So where else am I gonna go? I wanna know the answer to this question of what you mean by eat my body and drink my blood. And I'm tempted to walk away because if there were anywhere else at eternal life, Jesus, I might go there. But I don't know anybody else who has those words. And so I'm gonna follow you. Are you gonna leave me or not? And Peter stops and he reframes this based on what he knows. And then he makes a decision based on what he knows, even though he doesn't actually know all of what Jesus meant by what he just taught. That will come later. An, easy, an easier example, another one, because I wanna give you a couple examples so this really hits home and gets cemented in you, is from John chapter nine. Jesus had just healed this blind man on the Sabbath day. He'd like spit in, spit in the dirt and made mud and put it on his eyes, told him to go clean himself off. And the guy came back and was like, wow, I see. And he's been blind since birth. And it's a Sabbath day. And this was really weird. Nobody, nobody had ever seen at this point a blind man get sight. At least this town had. Maybe you have, they hadn't. They actually acknowledge that. They say, we've never seen this. In all of the history of the world, nobody has ever seen a blind man get sight again. And it just happened. And people start freaking out. So they bring this guy to the religious rulers. They bring him to the Pharisees at the time uh, because they don't know what to do with this. And the Pharisees have all sorts of problems because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, which they they were thinking that shouldn't happen. Um, And they also don't like Jesus. We find out in this story that they had said anybody who calls Jesus the Christ will be kicked out of the synagogue. Um, and so everybody's sort of like wondering what to do with this guy. And, and, and the, the Pharisees want to know how Jesus did it. And he's like, I don't know. He like spit in the dirt, made mud, put it on my eyes. I see, it's crazy. Um, and they send him away. They call his parents in and they say, it, it, was your son really blind since birth? Because this doesn't happen. And they say, yeah, he was blind since birth. And they say, but anything other than that, you got to ask him. He's a grown man. Parenthetically, John says, they actually didn't want to say anything else because they were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue. And so they leave, and then we're going to pick up here in John chapter six or John chapter nine. So for the second time, they, they called this man who had been blind, and, and they said to him, "Give glory to God." Right? That's like swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Right? I mean, in the middle of the synagogue, you give glory to God. You do not lie. We know that this man is a sinner, Jesus. That's what he's talking about. We know that this man who healed you is a sinner. And he answered, "Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know." 
that though I was blind, now I see. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing, one thing I do know. Do you see what he just did? He reframed the possibilities for how he could respond to them. This is huge. Is Jesus a sinner, yes or no? That's the framing. There are two possible answers you can give, former blind man, yes or no. Is he a sinner? Do you think that the blind man knows? Does he have enough information? According to the story, we don't actually know either, but, but if I'm framing the story well, I suspect it's a question that's a little beyond his pay grade at this point. Is the guy who healed you a sinner? He just, you were blind, he just met you and healed your eyes. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. I don't know. And I refuse to play by your rules. I refuse to take the framework that you've given me and try to answer the questions that you're asking me within that framework. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you what I do know, and you guys can let that shed light on this conversation, and it blows up. Pharisees are debating. They have all these sort of questions. Um, he ends, the, this blind man ends up sort of being very cynical with them and starts saying, do you guys want to become his disciples too? It's a really interesting interchange. Um, he goes on later and Jesus comes and reveals himself to the man and tells him that he's the Messiah. And we find in that story that, that, that Jesus says, do you want to follow the son of man? And he goes, tell me who the son of man is so I may follow him. And he says, it's me. And he says, Lord, I believe. But up to that point, he didn't know. And so he stuck with only what he knew in the middle of this huge thing with debates amongst the people and debates amongst the Pharisees and tension with his family and all of these things and like being everybody going back and forth and he's sitting there going one thing I know one thing I know for the debatable issues that we'll be looking at over the next few weeks framework is everything what is the one thing you know what are the ten things you know what are the two or three things that you know how do you frame these debatable issues? How far is too far is terrible framework. Terrible framework if you want an answer to the question that's really going on. How far is too far will always give you a wreck of an answer. A wreck. Can women be pastors? Is it a sin for me to get drunk? Why does God allow evil in the world? Are we responsible for the earth? Great questions. But the framework that we use when we try to address these questions, it creates and it limits or, or it allows the range of possible answers and conversations depending on how you frame that thing. How we frame the debatable issues in our life is, are, is vital if we do not want to be tossed around by the waves of doctrine and by human cunning. And instead, we want to follow Jesus as mature adults with the full stature of Jesus. So tonight, um, very quickly, I'm actually gonna try to do this in less than five minutes. Um, I, I want to introduce the topic of hell and I wanna show you what it might look like to frame what I think is a very, very hard topic really well. The question I want to frame is, uh, and the question I want to sort of shine the light of truth on, the dark sort of room that doesn't seem to have a light in it for us sometimes, is whether or not people who've never heard of Jesus will go to hell. Will somebody who's never heard of Jesus go to hell? This is a huge debated issue in our culture, uh, not actually, interestingly enough, within a lot of churches. It's not debated often in churches. On the fringes of churches, it's debated a ton. People who are sort of marginally in a church with those outside the church, that issue is hot. But even those within the church have lots of questions about this, so I think it's a, pre I think it's a pretty good one to sort of try to figure out how to frame. 
Will people who've never heard about Jesus go to hell? Some of you in the room, when I ask that question, will people who've never heard of Jesus go to hell? Some of you in the room immediately have answers to that question that are totally in disagreement with others in the room who immediately have answers to that question. And both of you think it's backed up by the scripture. Both of you think it's attested to in the history of the church, was professed in some way by Jesus, has been revealed to us by God on high, and you disagree with each other. Some people in this room think there's, it's impossible to ever know for sure, and so the question just frustrates the crap out of you because you just think it's, whoa, please don't talk about it. Those thoughts all exist here. If you've never thought about it before, I'm kind of sorry, but whatever. Um, it's a good question. Um, I want to frame this really quick. Much of our problem, I think, much of why we're so easily tossed around comes from not knowing how to frame this or our doubts. How do I frame the disagreements and the debates? How do I frame the mystery in my life? Do I just sort of enter into it and let everybody else dictate the rules of engagement? Here's my question, and now you're forced to answer it according to how I asked. Are we willing to step back and go, what do I know? So in one conversation, the debate about hell is framed in a yes or no answer. Will people who've never heard of Jesus go to hell? And I say, well, okay. And, they, and somebody goes, no, 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 yes or no. And I go, no, 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 I, let me reframe it. No, yes or no. That's one framework. Somebody else might say, okay, I know it's impossible to have any sort of certainty over this matter, but do you think people who've never heard of Jesus will go to hell? Now that framework says whatever we say can have no conviction because if I don't change the framework, I've now agreed with you that no one can ever have certainty about this, right? No one can say for certain. And if I just answer you without pushing back against that a little, I'm now agreeing with you that no, no answer is actually, it has any sort of ump or conviction to it. It's just a guess. I must actually resist that framework and step back and think, what do I know and create a new one? So let me show you what it looks like. Before I do, I want you to think about this real quick. How do you, in your head, please, um, how do you answer that question? Will people who've never heard of Jesus go to hell? I want you to think about how you'd answer that question. I'm not gonna ask you to say it out loud. God knows already, so don't worry about that. If you're worried about just like saying it inside, whatever that means. Uh, but I do want you to think about it because I wanna actually put up this framework and then I want you to test your answer against this framework. That's what I want you to do in sort of internally in your mind and in your heart, okay? Um, I'm gonna use what I know to create a space for what I don't know. So what I'm gonna do is use what God has told us, what God has revealed to us throughout history. Through Israel, through the prophets, through Jesus, through the apostles, through the early church, what God has revealed to us, this is stuff we can actually know. And I'm gonna use that to create a space for the stuff I don't know in this question of whether people who've never heard of Jesus go to hell. Will you put up that image that looks super awesome? Um, thanks. That's really it right there. Okay. Um, I, I limited myself to five. If I framed this using a lot of scripture, this would be more like a circle because there would be so much scripture around this. But for the sake of tonight and, and, and brevity in this thing, I just put up five. Um, I actually put up four and couldn't resist, so I had to put up five. And then I had to make this thing. Which, anyway, whatever, I'm getting done. Okay. Um, that's as best I can do on the computer with that. Um, Okay, so these are things I know uh, from the scriptures about this issue. Uh, we'll start at the top uh, left-ish. Um, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, from John 14, 6. However you answer this question, can people who've never heard of Jesus, or will people who've never heard of Jesus go to hell? I, 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 I don't know exactly, but I know, I know this. No one comes to the Father except through him. 
that doesn't say no one comes to the Father except for those who've heard about him in English or heard the name Jesus as a proper pronoun in a particular spelling. That's not what it says. If anybody is going to go to the Father and be with him, it's going to be through Jesus. So let me just start. I know, I know that. That doesn't answer every question, but, but let me start with what I know. I also know that God desires that no one should die or perish. He knows, I know that. I know that's true. Any answer you give me, any answer you have that says somebody doesn't go through Jesus is not true. And so there's a little light in that space. Any answer you give me that says God is somehow pleased with people dying or going to hell is not true. It is less palatable for him than it is for you that people die or go to hell. So any answer you give me, it must, it must be submitted to both of those things, but we're not done because there's still all sorts of answers that come out of that, right? So I also know that, that all tribes and tongues and nations that have existed all over the course of the world and history will be represented before the, before the throne room of God at one point. I don't know exactly what that means for your question. I just know that it's a part of what I have to deal with. Somehow, God is, is through Jesus, because I know that has to happen, bringing people of all tribes and tongues to him. Now, there are people of tribes and tongues that existed before Jesus walked on the planet in the way we know about. I also know that many are with God who did not know Jesus in the way we think of now. I know that. I know, I know Moses and Elijah at least, and then, of course, the writer of Hebrews has a bunch more names that they bring up, and those are just a representative example. There's plenty, plenty more, okay? That's an understatement. But at the very least, Moses and Elijah are chilling with Jesus in this transfiguration moment, but they never went through this salvation process that you and I think of if we've grown up in, in, in churches in the Bible Belt where, where somebody has to sort of uh, go to a camp typically or something, I don't know, and, and make a profession of faith, an acknowledgement of sin, a profession of faith, ask Jesus to come into our literal hearts, you know, sort of thing. Um, where we go through that process, that's not what they did, and they're with him. Now, that had to be through Jesus somehow. Now, I, now what you'll start finding is, as I start putting these things together, I, I don't know exactly how these two things go together, and so there's this space that's created between them. There's truth, but there's this tension that exists in the midst of all of this truth, and I'm not exactly sure how to resolve it. But the tempting thing for me to do is to eliminate one side of that, to take away one piece of this truth, to alleviate the tension and give me a nice, easy answer that might work for a week before I'm moved by some other wind of doctrine, by some other really smart, human-cunning person who gives me a fantastic argument. But I also know something else. I also know that hell is real and people will be in it. This is a very simple framework. And if all of these are true, if all of these are true, and all of these things, I, I tried to do as little real interpretive stuff as possible, okay? Uh, if you're worried about hell, I used Daniel just because it's a really clean passage. Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else uh, by far. Um, but there's all sorts of stuff Jesus had to say in Matthew particularly um, about hell. But like, I tried to not do much interpretive work at all. I tried to just give you guys passages of scripture that if you went and read them, you wouldn't think, wow, he went through some serious like jumps and did some gymnastics and new Greek or something. Okay, I don't. But, um, but this is all pretty straightforward stuff. But if all this stuff is true, then any answer you give me must agree with all of those things. And any one side of that is removed, it's easy to then introduce pretty trite answers. 
Really, if I remove this bottom thing, then you can say, well, everybody's gonna go to heaven then, right? God doesn't want anybody to perish, all tribes and tongues, which I, now I take literally as actually all tribes and tongues and nations. No one comes to Father except to me. Many didn't know him, whatever. Why are we even talking about hell anymore? I can just take that away. If I take away that God desires that no one should perish, it becomes very easy for me to say, well, God somehow must just be really pleased at a bunch of people being in hell. Or so, I mean, whatever, I'm being trite, you know? But that's my point. You take away any number of these truths and the tension is alleviated and now all of a sudden you can introduce things. You might have heard uh, last semester I, I spoke one time about the Trinity. I talked about the early church defining the Trinity and saying this definition guards truth. It doesn't fully define it. It guards the space within which we must not deviate. We must stick with what we know, not pretend that we know things we don't. One thing I do know, it's this. Whether he's this or that, I don't know. I know that, um, I know that this, that this resists, this doesn't allow for simple yes and no answer to the question, will people who've never heard of Jesus go to hell? I know that. That doesn't mean I know nothing. Quite frankly, because I know so much, and this is a small representative example. Because I know so much, I, I have to. I must, if I'm gonna stick with what I know, I must resist anybody who gives me such simple answers like that. I must resist that. The simple yes or no. Because I know all these things and a simple yes or no doesn't address all of this. I know a ton of truth that creates this space, this framework for this mystery. A ton of truth which shines light on the question that I have. And so what'll happen is I'll ask people for their thoughts or I'll hear some preacher preach or I'll read some book that says something or I'll read some article that makes some claim about Christians or the church or history or something and I'll read it and I'll come back to the, what I know is true has been revealed in the scriptures and I'll say, let me think according to what I know. Let me step back and not stick with the framework that you have given me let me consider what I know. So I know everyone will be saved through Jesus. I know that God primarily works through his church and has commissioned us to tell everyone about him. I know that some will go to hell. I know that God doesn't want that more than you don't want that. This framework, simple framework, lifts up the responsibility of the church to be on mission. Because it doesn't take away the burden that God has given the church that, quite frankly, the privilege that we don't feel sometimes is a privilege uh, of, of actually being a part of God's work in the world. It doesn't alleviate that. But at the same time, it leaves tension, it leaves space for us to trust that God, who has done, let me stick to the bottom left, for example, or the, or the right over here, for example, like it also leaves room to say that, well, we can trust God in all of the things we don't know with this. He's able to save in ways that I don't know. I just know somehow it's still through Jesus. However he goes about that, I trust him because I trust him, honestly, quite frankly, more than I trust your good arguments. And I trust him more than I trust my arguments. And I trust that his definition of goodness is actually more good than mine. That's played out over and over and over again. It behooves you that I trust him. That's what this framework leaves room for. What would it look like if you took some of the really hard questions and struggles that you have about God, about self, about this world? Maybe they're theological questions, intellectual questions. They might be relational questions, intimacy questions, any number of things. 
What would it look like if you took these really hard questions and struggles that you have with your faith and with your knowledge of God and self and you allowed Jesus and his word to frame that dark space? What would it look like if when you didn't know what to do or you found yourself wavering back and forth if you step back just for a second and you said, first, there's, there's one thing I do know. This is the exercise before us in the coming weeks with a handful of ridiculously uh, hard topics um, for a lot of college-age Christians and, and more than that. We want to show you how to frame some of those issues that are debated. Drinking, sex, the problem of evil, women in leadership. Another debate is men in leadership. I want to come, I want you to come every week not simply for answers to your questions, although I do, I hope that you get answers to some of your questions. But y'all, um, you will continue to have more and more questions for the rest of your life. More than you can possibly imagine right now. There's questions I'm thinking about with kids that I never even thought would be on my rate. Should I spank my kids or not? Is it, how important is it that I talk to my kids about Jesus? How much do I, do I want to baptize them as infants or when they profess belief in something? And what are the theological ramifications of that? Like, should I, I mean, I had this huge, like hour long conversation about whether it's okay to give my girl pink Legos or should I give her like regular blue Legos? Like, seriously, like what's the deal? What am I supposed to do? Uh, a girl version or is it bad to sort of recognize that there might be a difference between men and women? I don't know. Like that's, What? And that's like one of the smallest questions in the realm of my life and I've got a myriad of those things and they keep coming. More and more come. You think you have a lot of questions, now you will have more later or you will give up on them altogether. So I don't want to, I don't want us to just try to answer each question and make you somehow dependent upon us to teach you or dependent upon a, a certain strategy of some kind or something like this. I, I want you to know the one who satisfies us in all questions. I want you to know the well that never runs dry. Like I want you to know Jesus. I think it's possible because of him that none of us need to be like children tossed in the waves with all of our doubts, with all of our questions, with all of our mystery. It's, and that we can actually live and become like mature adults. We can come to find out how to frame the mystery in our lives with the truth that has been revealed to us. This is not something I'm teaching on and do not go through myself, y'all. Like, I went back and looked. When I was in college, we didn't have, uh, I didn't have Facebook or text messages or instant messaging or anything like that. Um, at the time, computers had just started to become somewhat popular. I think my freshman year was the first year we were required to have an email address at my school. And... Um, I know that actually because nothing worked. Um, I, I had to make phone calls to get grades all the time. Um, and uh, at the time, the place to have online discussion was forums and there was this geek forum called Ars Technica um, that I was really, really big into because I liked computers and I did a lot of stuff with computers. And um, I, I just checked today because I just wanted to see. But over the course of a, just a few years, I had um, the, my, my post count which isn't like comments on Facebook. Like these are like paragraph length discussions and page after page threads. A 3,459 posts in just a few years. That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, I had a ton of questions. And I felt comfortable engaging the, the agnostics and atheists because I actually trusted them more. I didn't know how I felt about the church. And we would just debate and talk and debate and talk and debate and talk. And, and, and I can't tell you there was a number of questions that did actually get answered, but I began to follow Jesus not because all of my questions got answered, 
but because I realized I could follow him in the midst of them. Because I actually thought that at one point, y'all. I thought, how could I possibly follow Jesus with all of these questions? I have to figure them all out first. I must. And once they're all addressed, then I, I, I will judge, I will make the decision whether he's worthy of me following him. And I will do that. It didn't sound arrogant to me at the time. That sounded logical. I'm gonna do that. My experience was finding that when I began to sort of take stock of what I knew about Jesus in light of all the questions that I had, I found a God who wasn't afraid. A God who can bring unity in the midst of a group of people who naturally are not unified. He can take two people who disagree and get them to eat together, to love each other. He can begin to transform the thoughts of each of them. Do you know he calls every single one of his disciples to be renewed constantly? Your goal is not to be uh, fixed and cemented into one static thing. You're, what God is calling you to is an ongoing, living relationship that continually moves and grows and changes as you follow him, reforming and renewing all the time. You will continue to have questions, brothers and sisters. You need to know what you're supposed to do and how to follow him in the midst of all of those questions. So we're gonna address that week by week as we go through this. I know that many of you have very hard questions and troubling thoughts and what seem like paralyzing doubts. So come and see what happens when we let light shine into darkness. What we know, one thing I really know, is that the darkness has not and will not overcome the light. I know that. Let's pray. Father, I pray even uh, right now in this moment that, um, that you begin by the power of your spirit to give freedom to people in this room to explore and open up and know the questions and the doubts and the darkness that they have in their mind and heart and that they know because your spirit helps them to know and, and I'm proclaiming it right now because it's true, God, that you are not afraid of those things, that you are not held captive and bound by the framing that we give you. And what I've come to know, Father, is how often you want to give answers to sons and daughters. And so you will often move us into that place. Help us to know who we are with you. And then you lavish us with the love of the knowledge of your son. But I ask for your grace and mercy on everybody here who doesn't know how to bring questions to you. Would you come to them like you do? Would you help them resist and stand back against the tides that pull for their minds and hearts and make them waver and change and, and flicker back and forth and are tossed by the waves? Would you help them um, grow in stature that they might be able to resist the pull of the waves, the pull of the tide, and that they, like you, would be able to walk through the middle of storms and maybe even calm them with your truth? Teach us. Teach us to stand in the light of your truth and, and let that light cast into the darkness of our lives. I pray for each one of these students as they look forward um, to the rest of this semester, that this semester would be a story of them growing in fullness of the stature of Christ. May they intend to do so. May they long to do so. And may you empower them to do that thing. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, I pray, amen.